here. Middle of the summer. We're just glad somebody shows up once in a while. It's great. I know people are coming and going. It's been busy. Uh, I want to remind you that today's scripture is found in Matthew chapter 5, just in case you're not on the Bible app. If you have your Bible with you uh, or your, uh, your laptop or whatever you've got with you, maybe you carried your PC from home, I don't know, whatever you've got. Uh, <coughs> we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and I'll give you a heads up right now, and I'll remind you in a few minutes that I'm actually going to be spending a lot of time in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading entirely from the message. I've gone through 10 or 12 different versions, looking at things that I felt were really pertinent to the message, and, and where could I get the best terminology and the best language. And for this message, that's where I am at the message. Um, I'm kind of feeling a little, I don't, I don't really call it nostalgic, but a little um, overwhelmed, I guess, today. Um, Today, I start my 45th year of preaching the gospel of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> to Him be the glory. I, I, it's hard to believe, but um, it's hard to believe He would use somebody like me, number one. It's hard to believe that He would allow me to stay in the pulpit and, and uh, try to impart whatever... He gives me, uh, we've seen God bless in so many wonderful ways, and uh, I just stopped to think about, I had a lot of time to think in the last couple of days just what that means, and uh, someday I'll explain that to you, but um, thank you for your support for these, some of you, nearly 30 years of that 44, and uh, I, I just praise the Lord and give him all the glory. We're in a series right now, which I've entitled, ID, Please. You've probably heard those words before. The first part of the series, we entitled, Blessed. Who are we? We're blessed. In the second part of the series, I entitled, God on Display. And I'll just say a word about that in a moment. So, do we really know who we are? And this series is really directed at born-again believers. It's really directed at those who name the name of Christ, those who are the blood washed, those who stand for what the Word of God stands for and believe with their whole heart that Jesus Christ has saved them and uh, has given them a new future and a new hope. With all our hang-ups, with all, with all of our challenges, with all of our gifts and talents, with all of our idiosyncrasies, with all of our everything, warts and all, can we just at any point kind of turn to, the, to ourselves or point to ourselves and say, well, there, this is us. You see, understanding our identity or our ID is essential for our health. It's essential for the physical health, the mental health, the emotional health, the relational health, and we can't leave out the spiritual health. Let's take a look at the message in this short video. As we He's God. So part three of our series, which we opened this morning, we're entitling uh, Kingdom Subjects. And I want you to do something for me and with me for just a moment, just to kind of get you warmed up, because it's kind of cool in here. Oh no, that's what we say in December, I forgot, yeah. Um, I want you to get a partner. Aw. Uh, yeah, just ask somebody, can I be your partner? Could you be my partner? If they say no. Okay, partner number one, let's not belabor this. Say to the other person, let's be kingdom subjects. Then the second person to whom that was said, would you say to the other person, the first person, Let's be kingdom subjects. Now, we're really going to have to work at this one, because I want to hear you loud and clear. I want you to look up here, and we'll all say it together in one strong voice, okay? One, two, three, saying it. Let's be kingdom subjects. Again? Let's be kingdom subjects. Great. Thank you. 
When I discover who I am, I'll be free. That was the declaration of Ralph Ellison, who was the author of The Invisible Man. Time and time in Scripture, we see folks who don't know who they are. We've met some of them already. And they struggle and flounder. And once they discover who they are, their, their lives are radically changed. I'll just give you one example, and that's uh, the example of Jacob. And if you don't know his story, just read into that a little bit. Uh, from Jacob to Israel. So many of us don't understand who we are. And when I'm saying many of us, I'm lumping all Christians together. And I know that's dangerous, but I'm doing that so we don't forget anybody. But everything here is inclusive. If Ralph Ellison is right or was right when he wrote that statement, then we're not really free. We're bound. So many of us don't understand who we are. And I believe the confusion about who we are results in the blood-bought child of God not operating at the level of effectiveness and influence and authority and power that is rightfully ours. We began our study of what Jesus said about us by saying that this is us. Number one, we're blessed. Number two, remember this, uh, we said we're square pegs in... uh, yeah, and we're also points of light in the world. And that was, those two things put together was what we call God on display. And as we continue the examination of us, of you, of me, of all of us, let me say this will be, and I want to just say this as a disclaimer, this will be the most scripture we cover in any setting in this particular series, and also it'll be the most direct, the most brutal, and the most blunt So buckle up, because most of what's said in the message this morning is coming directly from the lips of Jesus. Did you know that here in our state, and I presume many other states in in the U.S., here in Hancock County, it's very popular, in the Ellsworth area it is, in the education system we have what's called adult education. How many have ever heard of that? Okay. And, and you pretty much know what that is. Uh, this is for young adults or people that have been out of school for some time and they want to come back and get to a certain level of education, either uh, prepare for a GED or get a high school diploma or whatever and move on in life. I, 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 in light of what we're going to read this morning, I wish there was such a thing as real adult Education. What I mean by that is an adulting school for believers. Go to this school and you will be an adult believer. So setting that stage, let me tell you that Jesus addressed four areas of our lives. And I want to start at uh, verse 19 of Matthew 5. If you're there, again, can I repeat? We are reading from the message and from the message entirely today. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, now this is Jesus speaking. This is often called the Sermon on the Mount. And there's so much more than just setting a nice pastoral background and saying all the wonderful, lovely things that Jesus said. He's going to get down where the rubber meets the road in these verses Starting at verse 19, he said, trivialize, don't trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously, show the way for others and you will find honor in the kingdom. That's very important. Unless you do this, this statement I came across again when reading it from the message not too long ago, two, three weeks ago. And it just arrested me, it just struck me that this is a real principle here by which Christians should be and ought to be living and ought to be listening. Here's what he says. Unless you do, not just better, far better than the Pharisees in the matters of what? Right living. Who doesn't want to know about right living? You won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Wow. So that's the intro. How are we doing so far? Okay. No bumps or bruises, no scratches, 
No wounds. All right. Hang tight. Now, area, I said there are four areas that he touches on, or he, direct, or he directs all of this at. Area number one, for those of you that are note-taking, is contentious relationships. I would say probably hard, there's probably nobody in this room that's ever been in such a thing or even knows anybody that was. <laughs> I just do this stuff in case it ever, you know somebody that's going through this, and then, you know, you know exactly how to counsel them. Verse 21. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you are on the brink of hellfire. These words are usually quite sobering when we say them in public. The simple moral fact is that words, what? This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. This is Jesus speaking. If you enter your place of worship and you're about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, Abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to the friend, make things right then, and only then come back and work things out with God. Mm. Or, or I, I just think that this is so very, very important for all of us. And I want to just stop here for a second because I'm going to continue. But um, I, I want you to see how directly Jesus is speaking to these people who had no idea what was coming next. They had no idea even really where he was coming from. But this is, this is essential teaching to the Christian life and to right living before God. So he says, before you do any of that religious stuff, go make things right, and then and only then come back and work things out with God. Uh, Say you're out on the street, he said, and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail, and if that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. That's area number one. We're going to come back to it. Area number two is lust. Verse 27, you know the next commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse, but don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Can I repeat that? Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. Let's not pretend this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, here's what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye the moment you catch it in a lustful leer. You have to choose to live one-eyed or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to drop off your right hand the moment you notice it raised threateningly. Better a blo- This is pretty straight preaching, wouldn't you say? Better a bloody stump than your entire being, being da- uh, uh, your entire being discarded for good in the dump. <laughs> Remember the scripture that says, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights." Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress unless she's already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. Pretty straight talk. You cannot use legal cover to make a, to mask a moral favor. Now I'm going to interject. This is serious stuff. 
If you have ears to hear, hear me. All have sinned. We have all sinned. But around here, we believe in, we preach, and my heart says, I hope we're practicing it, something called grace. We believe in and we, and we preach and we practice something called forgiveness. We believe in restoration. And we believe in freedom. I'm coming back to this subject. I'm going to let us all just digest what Jesus is saying here and move to area three. Area three is truth. Here's what he says. And don't say anything you don't mean. Now, this counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. He's always referring them back to their traditions, what they've been used to hearing, what they may have been brought up in, most likely. He says, you only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you, and never doing it. Or saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Isn't that a statement? When, think of this, just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. I, I, I suggest that there are some words in some of these verses that a person could camp on for days just meditating on the truth and the depth and the power of the message in those words. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. And then the fourth area is the area we call dealing with enemies. Again, I'm pretty sure nobody here has ever had to experience that, but if you ever do meet somebody, you'll have some answers. Starting at verse 38. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. <laughs> the only biblical exception that I've ever found to that particular rule is the game of hockey. As you know, I have a long history in the game. And sometimes it doesn't work. But that's not what he's talking about here. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more of the tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. He just keeps citing the old laws. He said, you're familiar with the written law. Love your friend and its unwritten companion. Hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. 
When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves. Your God-created self. This is what God does. You see, he gives his best. He gives the sun to warm and the rain to nourish. To whom? Everyone, regardless. The good and the bad, the nice and nasty. And if all you do is love the lovable, you do you expect the bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, church, funny that Paul repeats this a couple of times in his writings, that we grow up in Christ. And Jesus here says, well, what I suggest is you Why? Because you're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created ID, your identity. Live generously and graciously toward others. Ha, the way God lives toward you. Talk about raising the bar. Wow. Wow. And and I read those again, and the other day I put a little note beside it, and I said, thank you, Jesus. We need this reminding, folks. Some don't need the reminding because it's the first time maybe they've ever encountered this teaching. And that's all right, too. That's fine. But this is raising the bar way beyond the human expectation, way beyond what the human mind can even conceive many times. He says that unless you do, this is the statement that arrested my attention and just plain, I mean, it just made me wonder if we'll ever figure it out. He said, unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matter of right living, and that's what I'm talking about this morning, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. Wow. Wow. And Jesus confronts this idea of what we've come to call religious fronting. And religious fronting is uh, playing like saints but living like ain'ts. We're like actors playing a part in a play. Oftentimes, we're talking a good game of right living, and we're not really living right at all. So he tells us that we must grow up, and we must live better in these four areas, the areas of contentious relationships, the area of lust, the area of truth, and the area of how we respond to enemies. Now, Jesus knew that Pharisees would not actually, as as we would say, pull the trigger and commit murder. But they'd hate someone to death. Jesus says we must be better than that. We must handle our anger differently. Jesus got angry even to the point of lashing out and letting a few people know that he was very upset, righteous indignation, literally angry at the point of lashing out. So what's the difference? Well, Paul over in Ephesians clarifies it and says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So you see, there's a time frame for anger. It's short-lived, and it's not lifetime. Some people, and perhaps some of us here today, have carried anger for decades. Let me tell you what's happened to that anger over time. It has become sin. 
Let me tell you the progression from there. After it becomes sin, we get our mouth involved, and then we start using our words as weapons. Jesus demands that we manage our mouth. Again, we're supposed to be grown up enough to know that words can literally kill. And this is the Bible. And you ask, well, where do these words and actions come from? The Bible says this, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Think about that. I have back here a bottle of water. I did take a few sips out of it, but it's still water. And if I were to pour a little of that right there on the floor, and not to leave this side out, pour a little of that right on the floor. I may have just desecrated the sanctuary. (laughs) (laughs) And I was to ask the church family gathered this morning, hey, why is there water on the floor? No, no. Why is that water and not Pepsi or Kool-Aid or coffee? Same over there. Why? Because, I mean, I'd be in major trouble with a facilities team if it was any of those things. (laughs) But the truth is, and I've checked twice now, there's water on the floor because there had been water... Say it with me. In the bottle. In the bottle. Similarly, this is what we call the principle of overflow. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Note taker, get this in your notes. What's inside us determines what comes out of us. And would I make a mess like that without cleaning it up? Of course I would. But I'm marking it at least. There you go. I think we have satisfied all environmental concerns. There you go. Did you get the picture? Did you get that little illustration? What's on the floor? Water. Why is it there? Because it came from somewhere. Yeah. And how do you know? What is it? Why is it water and not something else? Because that was what was poured out of the bottle, and that's what was in the bottle, and it's the principle of the overflow. And Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and what's inside of you is going to determine what comes out of you. I don't care how many religious titles you give yourself. That just happens to be biblical, eternal truth. And for your notes, I don't know if I have this on the screen. If I do, fine. If I don't, I want you to put this in your notes. There are two nevers for all of us to heed. The first never is never judge people by their past. Would any of us be here today if we are still being judged by our past? That which is over and done and gone and behind us and <clears throat> covered in the blood, would, would, would any of us even have the motivation to come out in public and face one another? Of course not. Never judge people by their past. 
Why? Because after a while, people learn. Most people do. After a while, people want more than just what they've had. And if we just keep judging by everything they've done in their past, they're not going to change. But people learn and people change. And then people move on. We've got to start believing that about people or we won't see changed lives. We won't see radical difference in people. We'll just keep going on saying and doing the same thing. Now, there's a second. I haven't mentioned this for years. Some of you, most of you have never heard me say this. But I've thought it many, many times. There's a second never that I want you to get in your notes. When a person is down on the ground in life. You ever been there? Never kick that person to the curb. That man or that woman deserves better treatment. I made this statement years, decades ago, and it it came back to me while I was thinking of this, and I wrote it down again. Why are Christians the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded? Why? Why? This is not a museum of old, rusty, crusty, dusty saints. This is a hospital for hurting people and for people who are down and for people who are already on the ground. And they don't need to be kicked into the ditch. They need to be lifted up. They need to be loved. They need to be forgiven unconditionally. And they need to move on in the grace of Almighty God, just like you did and just like others do. So you say, Pastor Bob, how do we grow up? I honestly didn't think you'd ever get to it, but here's how we grow up in the area of contentious relationship. I want you to notice once again that Jesus didn't deal with offenses as if they might happen. My friend, hear me, it is a foregone conclusion. We cannot live this life without the opportunity to be offended by someone, sometime, somewhere, somehow. And you say, well, that's never happened to me, and I don't expect it ever will. Would you please, as quickly as you can, check your pulse? (laughs) Now he tells us we should not hold on to those offenses. He explains that grudges block our worship. I'm going to hopefully develop something around this theme because I've got to tell you, I could teach and preach on this a long while that whole idea of grudges, that blocks our worship and our prayers. I don't care, again, how religious and churchy you get or you look or you make yourself sound. This whole idea of grudges blocking everything in our relationship to God. Let me just put it this way. A breakdown of an earthly relationship equals a breakdown in our heavenly relationship. And I'm not saying I suppose that happens. I know it happens. I've seen it happen. And you have too. You know, Jesus says to us, you need to be a first responder. I like that term. So many of us sit around waiting, waiting, waiting on someone else to make the first move. And so what happens? There's never a move made. It's a stalemate. And when you're in a stalemate, it causes our relationship with God to go stale. So Jesus says, don't lose even a minute. How much time have you lost already? Ask yourself that this morning. Wow, I've been holding this grudge. I've been carrying it around. How long have I been carrying this? Is it a matter of minutes? Is it a matter of hours? Is it a matter of weeks? It could be a matter of months. It could be decades. Friend, anger is a key leverage point for the enemy. The enemy loves it. The enemy loves it. When you get caught up in anger. And when you get caught up carrying these grudges. And if we don't deal with offense quickly, we will allow anger to uh, interpret our intentions. And we'll find ourselves in bondage. Yep. Separated from God. 
separated from man. And I want to add one other thing that's very, very, very dangerous spiritually. It's a dangerous practice. I don't know why it's, I don't know why, I don't know why. Everybody's trying to be a do-gooder, I think. I don't know why it is so prevalent in so many churches. Has been for years, still is today. Don't pick up other people's offenses. Live your own life. Show grace and compassion. Love without question. Help where you can. But when you pick up someone else's offenses, you're as guilty of holding that grudge or that anger or that problem as the next guy. Now Jesus goes on and he says, this is us. Listen to this powerful statement. He says, your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body can. In fact, the body is usually only the visible indication that the heart has become corrupted. corrupted. Lust must be cut off at its source, and he says the source is the looking, the looks. It can't get into our heart if it doesn't get into our eyes and ears. If it does, then we open the door or the gate, and we wonder why now it's in our heart. Jesus says we must be willing to live one-eyed, meaning have a singular focus. He's trying to teach us to be brutal with how we deal with even a glance or a passing look. Wandering hands and feet are the byproduct of wandering eyes that have been allowed to roam. Some of you remember the story in Joshua after the battle of Ai, That army was rendered helpless. They couldn't beat themselves, let alone anybody else. And they went through the camp trying to figure out what had happened. And the end of the story, you read it. You bring yourself up to date. It would be a great great homework assignment for you. But they found that there was sin in the camp. And they found out that it was Achan. And they asked Achan what he had done. And they knew what he had done. He had taken the spoils of the last victory. And they were explicitly told, do not touch the spoils of this battle. Leave everything the way it is. We're going in. We're taking them out. We're moving on. And here's what he said as to why he took the spoils of war. He said, I took because I coveted, because I saw. See, in through the portal of the eye. And that became covetousness that became something i don't have i'd like to have i'm not supposed to have i know the rule but oh oh if i only had oh if say well just look in no it doesn't hurt yeah it does according to jesus it does No exceptions or excuses here. Ruthless honesty with our eyes, our bodies. He continues. He goes a step further. I I could kind of wish that weren't here, but I am not going to mince words. He didn't. He said, cut off the hand rather than raise it in anger. Whoa. What's he trying to communicate here? Extreme measures. It's an at-all-cost mentality. He knows, we should know because we should be grown up enough and we should have learned by others' mistakes that it is inevitable. Our life will end up on the trash pile if we allow lust to run rampant in our life. A wandering eye leads to a wounded heart. Jesus says, okay, that all aside, it is time for you to grow up. Just Grow up. Become adult. Yeah, I wish there was such a thing as adult education. A school where you could go and learn how to be an adult. How to be grown up when you come out. We've been told to keep our hands to ourselves. And Jesus says, oh, keep your eyes to yourself. Hey, Achan, what would have happened if you'd kept your eyes to yourself? Well, you and your wife and your family would still be alive. 
Now, that was the penalty. Yeah, anybody that touches the spoils of that battle, you and your whole household will perish. You will die by the hands of your own army. Grow up, he said. Take the necessary steps to address the area of life. Quit window shopping. Quit looking for a better deal. This is us. And I know some people could sit here and say, ah, so I hope the men are listening. And I do too. And equally, I hope the women are listening. We're going to be an equal opportunity preaching station here. Because this applies to both genders. In the third area, Jesus is confronting the fact that the Pharisees had developed an elaborate system of making oaths that would limit their liability. Oh boy. You think some insurance company that advertises on TV came up with the idea of limited liability. Well, you're way off. You're way off. You're 2,000 years off and more. You see, the Pharisees knew that according to the law back in Deuteronomy 23, that making a vow and not keeping that vow, hello, 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 why do we have wedding? And not keeping it was a sin, Deuteronomy 23. So he's, a, he's applying that and appealing to these people who would know that. And he said they work to make it sound like they're making a promise, by the, but then they add unnecessary language, and then they do it, they muddy the water of what they were actually saying they would do. You can say anything you want, good, bad, or indifferent, mostly bad about the Pharisees, but I'll tell you, they're a pretty crafty bunch. Around here, we call them smart. Here's what John Stott said, and I quote, Swearing, meaning taking oaths, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. End of quote. I love that quote. I love that quote. And A.M. Hunter said this, and I quote, Oaths arise because men are so often liars. Jesus is saying, this is us. Yes, men. Yes, Christians. When we say we will do something, we will do it. Our promise is a direct reflection of God's promise. When I say yes and don't fulfill my yes, you know what I do? I give God a bad rap. So my yes should be yes, and my no has to be no. How good is your yes? How good is your no? Can anyone count on you to live up to your word? Let's just get beyond the past and let's listen to the words of Jesus who said to you and to me and to all those gathered on that hillside, just grow up. So easy to say. Yeah, this is often us, isn't it? Even this whole thing, like I just explained about the Pharisees, kind of two-faced. Now, I need to explain something here. After telling you to be yes men, or to be truthful, downright truthful, now I might be saying be two-faced. Let me explain. Jesus says we're to turn the other cheek. How many of you ever heard that? If you hit me on this side of the face, then I'll turn to the other side and give you access to my other cheek. I read that for the first time 100 years ago, and i got to tell you, it took me another 50 years to stop laughing. I'm like, what? I was born a fighter. In my early days, I had to fight to survive, basically. And I thought, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Somebody hits me on one side of my face, and I say, that's a pretty good shot. Give me another one. That sounds lunacy to me. That's crazy. We've been taught by our society to always do what? Strike back. I can still remember, God love him. I can still remember my dad saying, I don't want to ever hear of you starting a fight out there. 
but you can finish any fight you get in. <laughs> now, he shouldn't have said that because I'm a literalist, but he did. So what does our, uh, our society teach today, and what do they practice? Revenge. Ah, oh, you just wait. Your day's coming. You'll get yours. This will come back to you. Pain for pain. If you hurt me, I'll inflict more pain on you. Be honest. That's the society we live in, isn't it? In fact, I'll even do my dead level best to make your injury worse than my injury. You'll hurt longer, and it'll be worse, and you may never get over it. Here's what Jesus said. Listen, listen. I have, this is a hard pill to swallow. Listen. Jesus speaking. Even pagans treat friendly people kindly, so there is no way to stand out by being nice to the nice. It's how we treat those that treat us badly that sets us apart and puts God on display. Huh? You act and you look more like Jesus when you refuse to strike back at those who strike you. Jesus illustrates and demonstrates the greatest strength when he, he, when, when, when does he illustrate his greatest power and his greatest strength? I'll tell you when, when he's being beaten. When he's being scourged. He's already been vilified. He's already been drugged through, dragged through a, a, a kangaroo court of nonsense. And then the final piece of this whole drama is he's led off to be crucified. And, and, and the interesting piece here, just so nobody gets the wrong idea, he has the eternal strength, the necessary strength and resources to retaliate and to win against all of his enemies. Someone said he could have called 10,000 angels. I think that would have been putting heaven on alert for no just cause. He could have just walked out of there. He didn't even need one angel. That's the kind of strength he had. But even in the worst case, what did he do? He refused to open his mouth. He refused to lift his hand to exact revenge. So who's stronger? The one who hits? Or the one who has the ability to strike back and doesn't. Are you digesting that? Okay, so then let me ask you, let me say this then next, if that's fresh in your mind. And some of us, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I've got to say this, and some of us can't even let somebody get the last word in a simple argument. Whoa! I had a feeling that it hit a chord. Now I take your pulse. I'll bet it's racing right now. <coughs> who's the strong one? The one who strikes? Or the one who could win that whole thing without striking even once? Oh, you all know the answer, so do I. And we spend so much time and energy, don't we? Huh? Because we can't let somebody else get the last word in a simple argument. Like in the, matter, in the whole scheme of eternal time. Like, who cares? And some people can't stop dreaming about and fantasizing about revenge. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, boy. When I finally went. Oh, man. When they get theirs, mm -hmm, I can just picture it. No, Jesus says there's a better way. There's a stronger way. Hear me. There's an adult way. Turn the other cheek. I think in essence he's saying this. Gift wrap your best when you've been treated the worst. 
How about that for a motto? If you struggle in relationships, how about that for a motto? Gift wrapped your best when you've been treated the worst. This is us. Two things that strike me in this lesson today, I don't know if you got anything out of it or not, but the two things that strike me are you can do far better than the Pharisees in the matter of right living, and you ought to. And the second thing is just grow up. Into what? Into grown-ups. Into grown-ups. Because in Christ, that's the next stage after being a babe in Christ. As Paul says, now grow up in Christ. And we become grown-ups. I see the pain. I feel the pain caused by broken relationships, by lust, by lying, by fighting. But because of our maturity in Christ, we ought to be grown up enough to deal with it. How? Like adults. We behave and treat people differently. Why? Because we are citizens of a different kingdom. That's why. That's the bottom line for you, Christian. In verse 48, our final verse, the Lord says this. I just want to punch it one more time. Grow up. Your kingdom subjects. And every one of you here wants to remember that because you already asked the person next to you, hey, let's be kingdom subjects. And we all agreed. So let's be kingdom subjects. Can we take a, a moment of quiet and reflect on these things and ask God to write them indelibly upon our hearts and upon our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's so timeless. It is so much, like it was written yesterday for just me. Or someone else here might say, that's just what I need. That's just, that's where I am. Or I've just come out of that. Or yes, I've heard that a hundred times before, but I never caught this or I never caught that. God, that's the work of your Holy Spirit. Man can't generate that. Man can't manufacture that. Only the Holy Spirit can make that happen. And we thank you for your presence amongst us this morning. We thank you for the attentiveness of your dear people. And we thank you for the love they have for your word and for the things of God. Thank you. Thank you that Jesus taught so directly that it not only just hit the hearts of his hearers on the hillside, but it's still resonating 2,000 years later. And it's just as contemporary today as it was then. But we need to pick it up. We need to apply it. We need to grow up. And we need to be, without fear or favor of any man, kingdom subjects to the honor and the glory of our great God. In Jesus' name.